Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. So welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are honored to be joined by Dr. Peter Bregan, who has a very illustrious career. And I would categorize him as one of the true medical heroes. Uh, one of the people who's, not, who's no longer with us is David Bowie, an icon in the music industry. And he had the song Heroes, which is one of my favorites. And what is a hero? A hero is someone with the multiple C characteristics. And what are those? Courageous. And I want to explore the, what makes Dr. Bregan so, so courageous? Why, why was he able to do what he's done? And we'll discuss what he's done, and he'll summarize it very shortly. But I want you to know he's a massive hero. He's confident, and he, and he, and he really knows the difference between knowing and believing. He, what, when you know something at the fundamental rate, and he's clever and creative, so when you combine all these with a passion, you really be, can become a hero. And he's done this for four decades. He's, he's, a, he's a, a psychiatrist. He did his residency training at Harvard, taught there, and he taught at Johns Hopkins. And uh, he, he's done a lot of work and actually uh, has a, over a dozen best-selling books on psychiatry, and he's been appeared in major media uh, channels like Oprah, 60 Minutes, 2020, Larry King. And he's frequently referred to as the conscience of psychiatry because he's been able to successfully reform the medical health field. And probably what he's best well-known for and what really, to me, puts him in the, in the hero field is his ability, uh, it, it, it's characteristic of being the first physician to come out against lobotomy. Yes, lobotomies. And he's going to describe what that is in case you didn't, weren't aware of it already. And psychosurgery. And he was the first to take a public stand about it. And he was a young man at the time and really stood up, stood up against giants in the field. And, and it just amazes me to have the the courage and the confidence to do that at such a young age. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. And, and he changed the whole, whole industry as a result. I mean, these people took the brains of 50,000 people. They just took them. And it, it's just remarkable that prior to Dr. Bregan, no one really professionally posed them. So uh, I first, I've known of him for a while, but I really became reacquainted with him because he did a one hour interview with Aaron and Melissa uh, from Truth Stream Media, and uh, they did an excellent documentary called The Minds of Men, and we'll link to that in this video. And he, he was really the star of the film, but uh, Aaron and Melissa do such a great job of exposing many of these uh, conspiracies of health. So I, I, this is a long intro, but Dr. Bregan's going to be do, doing most of the talking this interview because he's an excellent speaker. He could talk it for hours on any topic and I, and I asked him if he would be kind enough to summarize his 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 over four decades I mean he's been he's 83 years old now and he's been practicing since I was in 
I'm in, 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 still in grade school. So uh, it has a very, very illustrious career. So I want to, with all that background and, and introduction, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. You know, I rarely actually do this. I have my own uh, radio TV show once a week where I could at any time do it on my own. And I, mm -hmm. I never done it on the radio TV and uh, it's just a hard thing to do by myself, I think. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll thank you so much. And I'll, I'll jump right on in. I mean, I was 18 years old. I was a Harvard freshman. And a friend of mine said, Peter, you're studying all the time. My brother and I are starting this volunteer program at the local state mental hospital. And uh, I went out to the local state mental hospital. And it was a nightmare. It, uh, it immediately, as I stepped on the wards of these giant buildings, not tall, two, three stories, multiple giant buildings up on a hill, uh, looking down over a small town, uh, 15 miles outside of Cambridge, maybe. And uh, I, when I walked in, it was, it was my Uncle Dutch's descriptions of liberating a Nazi concentration camp. The place stank. People were sitting in these bare, barren corridors, which were called wards. They really were concrete corridors. They, they had a TV set that wasn't working up on a wall and, and bolted down tables and chairs so people couldn't throw them at each other. No, no attention being given to them at all. Um, uh, often just sitting, some hallucinating. Uh, and somebody uh, told me that the girl in the corner curled up in a ball on a floor by a radiator was, had been a Radcliffe student. In those days, Harvard and Radcliffe were sister schools. You could go, you know, the women went to Radcliffe and the men went to Harvard in those days. And I, I looked around, and I can't tell you exactly why, uh, Joe, but my thought was there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I think it's that, there was that inner sense that I knew how hard life was. I knew how my adolescent years had been so difficult, even though I was very, I mean, I was very successful. I got an arm. Um, and, but I didn't, I knew inside my vulnerability. And I knew that if things had gone a little different, I could have been there. And when I, when I visited with the people, what was so apparent was they were people. They weren't schizophrenics or whatever, you know, involutional melancholics in those days for depressed women. Uh, they were folks and they were so, most of them so glad to see a young person a Harvard student in the wards. Um, it was like I found a calling. I, I wouldn't have thought of it then that way, but it was as if I found a calling. I mean, how could I ignore this? And the doctors were callous. The aides were callous. There was just no love in the place at all. And I can tell that even though I didn't really have much experience growing up with love, I could feel that what was missing was, was love, was care was nurturing, it was so clear. And then I became a leader of the program and the leader of the program. I ended up writing, a, starting a book about the program that, and several of us ended up was writing. Was pre, pre or post your medical training? This is high college. This is college, Harvard, okay. Harvard college. I was traveling around the country with Harvard professors. I mean college, sophomore, junior college, and giving lectures on volunteers. And I confronted the state hospital superintendent and 
where this chutzpah comes from, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, look, we want, we have a social worker that will supervise 15 of us. We had 200 students, you know, painting walls, running parties, taking people for walks. I said, but we each like our own uh, student. We'll call ourselves case aides uh, or volunteer aides. And, and we think we could help them if we saw each student, uh, you know, our own patient once a week. You know, we wouldn't be there in the summers. I would be. I was there every summer. But we might not be there Christmas. I was there most Christmases. But but not all the students were going to be there all the time like I was. And he got very balky about it. The the president of the Boston Psychoanalytic Association said we ruined the patients. Here I'm 18, 19 years old. I'm looking at these people. They're crazy. How are we going to ruin the patients? And besides, I've never seen a psychoanalyst on the wards. So I enter into this. Alice in Wonderland, but I had this conviction that these were people. They were no different than me. And um, well, I, I threatened to take the program to Boston State Hospital. I was at Metropolitan State. and the, Oh, it's not pleasant, but finally the superintendent said, all right, you can have your program. And they picked the patients we couldn't hurt, and they assigned us each a patient. We had about, I think, 12, 15 students. I write up this, this is how my book, Toxic Psychiatry, which is, I think, one of my best, uh, um, how that uh, how it begins with this story. And we ended up getting every, almost every patient out of the hospital. I mean, we got them placed in different places that were much better. We got some back with their families. And so it was so clear to me that this was the way to go. And because I had keys, I took the keys from the nurse's station one day and they must have assumed that the superintendent gave them to me or something. And so I had keys the whole time and I would go where I wanted. And I watched electroshock and insulin coma shock where people would come in, they'd give them overdoses of insulin, send them in the coma, they'd be frothing at the mouth, unconscious, having seizures and uh, getting ready to die, literally. And then they would give them uh, orange juice or sugar water and they would come alert again. And it was so clear to me what was going on. The people would come in full of energy, angry, depressed, anxious, uh, but people, and then, and, and often resistant. They didn't want this and they'd be pulled down, it'd be done to them. They'd, they'd get this uh, injection of insulin, knock them out. Killing them, really, basically. And But when they came awake, they were like puppies. They were grateful. They said, thank you, thank you. I feel like you saved me. And they'd be, and they, they'd be docile. So it was very clear to me. I'm 18 years old. I haven't been trained. There was no fooling about what this was. I knew exactly what it was. I knew what shock treatment was. And then I saw lobotomy patients. Shock treatment, by the way, is electrodes. We still do this. I've been fighting this. We're still doing it. Had some recent successes, but which I might get to tell about but it's whether they put electrodes on the, on the forehead of the brain, usually sometimes different places, but always one of them is over the frontal lobes. And you get, you get the shock of a voltage far beyond the wall. I mean, they go up to 400 volts or more, and the amperage is huge. It's fixed now at 800, 900 milliamps. That's 10 times what you need at times to give convulsion. So they're blasting the brain way beyond what it needs to give the convulsion. And it makes docility. And it makes people out of touch with themselves. It makes people unable to complain. And often, as I go through the medical records, I do a lot of legal work around these areas. And I go through the medical records. 
And the cure is when the nurse writes no longer complaining or the doctor writes mood elevated, which is the artificial euphoria brain damage. This is very brain damaging. Um, so I saw all this and I decided, well, there's a place for me in, in psychiatry. I'm working with Harvard doctors. I'm talking at conferences. I got a book being written, an article being published, very young. So I go to medical school in order to uh, have the right trade union to do this work. I knew it was the right trade union rather than say psychology. <laughs> so it was my father actually who seldom spoke. And I said, dad, I, I want to go and I want to do work in these hospitals and I want to help reform this profession. And I'm, you know, I'm actually having an impact already. And, um, but I'm not sure what graduate school to go to. And he said, well, son, who has the strongest trade union? <laughs> I said, that was clear. So I went to medical school. I wasn't sure I could even pass medical school. It wasn't where my interest was, but I worked. And I, you know, for the first time in my life, I studied every day. And then I got through med school, did well in med school. And I didn't yet see that things were drastically changing. That would happen a little later. I went to Harvard uh, for part of my residency in 1962-63. And Harvard had changed overnight. This is so important for history. I went there. I'd already done an interview. I'd been interviewed by a family therapist. I thought I was going to be doing a lot of therapy. I already knew the research director because I had I'd actually visited with him and talked with him as, being, as the volunteer leader from the Harvard Radcliffe uh, Mental Hospital Volunteer Program, Jerry Clareman. Jerry would later become uh, one of the most high-ranking psychiatrists in the federal government and a professor at Harvard, full professor, you know, real big deal, he helped shape psychiatry. But Jerry at this point was, you know, second tier at, at the Harvard Training Center. And he said, what are, you, what are you interested in, Peter? We knew each other. I said, well, I wanna continue learning about human personality and psychology and how to help people uh, grow, become stronger and overcome their, the things that are afflicting them. And he laughed, he said, that's not what we're gonna be doing, Peter. We're gonna be giving medications and we're going to be using computers to decide which ones to choose. This is 1963. And uh, I said, well, Jerry, that's not the direction I want to go in. He said, well, you won't, you won't get anywhere then. And that was, that was it. And we talked. And I, I was in the program for a year. And I realized this, this, is, uh, this is not going anywhere. These Harvard kids who were on the ward trying to help patients had no idea how to do it. And I knew because I sat with many and walked with many very disturbed people for sometimes more than I studied when I was at Harvard. And so um, I left Harvard. And by, by the way, I was the only person ever left Harvard after his first year. And the director called me and said, you can't leave. You're doing a good job, but you know, you can't be a professor yet, Peter. And I said, well, I think I'm going to go back to where I interned with Thomas Sass at the New Upstate Medical Center. And he was very disturbed that I was leaving. Um, and I left and they welcomed me there. I had part of my, I'd had my internship there. And Tom Zoss was there and he'd written a book called The Myth of the Mental Illness. But when I got back to, to Syracuse, Upstate Medical Center is what it really was in Syracuse, Zoss, after publishing The Myth of Mental Illness was under huge attack. I'm right in the middle of this political assault. They're trying to fire Zoss. 
It's a state mental hospital that he's teaching in. They won't let him do that anymore. He can't break through there, but they can't get him fired. And I'm the one resident who says, well, you know, I believe in what Zas is doing, but I fortunately didn't get fired. And I got a good record. And then I went on to the National Institute of Mental Health because I was, you know, at the top. And I went into the National U.S. National Health Service as an officer for two years. And I went to uh, stationed at NIMH. And there I saw clearly what was happening. Psychiatry was leaving the psychosocial model behind. And, and my volunteer program had already been described by the last big federal commission on mental health. It's mentioned two, three times and described as one of the solutions to the vast mental hospital problems. It was the big last psychosocial uh, report. Never had one again from the federal government. And um, nothing about drugs, drugging and shocking people in it. It was... It was uh, much more real, much more about what's really going on with human beings and human suffering, which is spiritual, psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could just see this writing on the wall, and I was not sure what to do. I was invited to stay at the National School of Mental Health. I, and I accepted briefly in the child division. I was very interested in helping children. Now I thought, I can't do this. And I gave them a warm, warning without even having a job that I was leaving. I didn't know what else to do, so I went into private practice. And you know, I thought private practice was selfish. That's not helping enough people. You have to change the world. You know, I was very, I wanted to do things, but then I thought, well, no. I'll go into private practice and help people. And that's what I was doing uh, without medication. I treated everyone, you could come out of a hospital hallucinating, I'd help you come off the meds, and I'd relate to you. I learned very quickly that the most disturbed people would calm down and relate when somebody cared about them, wasn't afraid of them, was interested in them, made no pretense of being superior to them, didn't act like, oh, I never had anything happen to me bad. I'm, you know, I got, I didn't wear a suit. Uh, I had long hair. It was 19, <laughs> 1968, 69, 70. And, uh, and that's what I was doing. I wrote a novel. I had two published novels eventually. Well, let me on. interrupt you there for a moment because I yeah. think it's an extraordinary point and, and really quite unusual that you were the rare psychiatrist who absolutely refused to use medications, at least initially. And then the ones who were on medication, you were put them on an aggressive strategy to get them off of the medication. So that was, drugs were not part of your not at all. Modality never were, never was, never have been. Which is right. it, just, yeah, right, Joe. Yeah, it wasn't even a change of mind or anything. I I knew from eighteen years old, looking at what was going on in the war, that people were just being drugged to stifle them. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was put them out of touch with themselves. Maybe it eased suffering, but at the expense of their brains. I I could just tell that. And then in my residency, that became clearer to me. I treated as many people as I could without the meds. Yeah. I kind of interrupted you as you started. I really got off talking. I almost never No, no, no. You were talking. <laughs> it was just a really important point I wanted it is, to yeah. emphasize. It was, and, and really, one of your most incredible strategies as a, as a physician to, to actually achieve this type of success without medications. And you've re- actually written books about this, too. Give many lectures. Yeah. Lots of books and lectures, a huge YouTube channel too. 
Yeah. And one of the things I found in my residency, I was the first resident to start doing family therapy wherever I, in both Harvard and the Upstate Medical Center. And I remember a woman who came in and um, she was so horribly depressed, you know, that everybody said it was biological. Even then, there's never been any science for it. They've just always said it because we're physicians, so it's biologic. And, um, and I, I couldn't get through to her. And that was rare. I used to calm people down who are manic. I, I used to help people who were very paranoid calm down. So in the mornings that, that they didn't get drugged up and I could, you know, just work with them. And I couldn't help this woman. And, and the uh, director of the hospital, he said, uh, well, look, Peter, you know, you got to start on some meds or uh, she's going to get shocked or go to the state hospital. I said to myself, I'm going to have a family session. So I called the family and I said, you know, this is not under my control anymore. And I said to the husband, your, your wife could get up being shipped out of the, shipped to the state hospital. And I said, let's bring in members of the family. I'd like to I understand her sister and her mother care about it. Let's bring them in. So we had a family meeting and this woman had never spoken, literally. And was sitting there and the husband says, I'm going to I'll take her home right now. And she says, no, no, I'm not going to let you do those things to me anymore. Well, there's this shock in the room. And the husband says, I'm taking you home. And maybe the father, her father was there. Some family member was there. We're talking about 1963 or four. And, um, and the family said, no, we'll take her home. And I said, yes, I'm, the, I'm in charge here and I would discharge her now because I don't want to go into the state hospital, into the care of the family, if you, and please promise to come back next week. And um, I worked with her. The, a few days later, the husband came in, and he actually charged down the central hallway to attack me. And I'm, I'm a mighty five foot five inches, probably 135 pounds at the time, <laughs> but I played football, and I could look huge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not judge. <laughs> he turned around right into the hospital. <laughs> oh Lord, I don't know where it came from. And she did great. She she was no longer psychotic when I saw her a week later. Um, maybe underneath of all kinds of things going on, but she was functioning with her family, living with her sister. It was just so clear to me this was all about people, not about diseases. But leaping ahead, so I'm uh, now I'm in private practice for two years. My practice is full. I'm doing family and couples work whenever I can. Probably no one else in D.C. is even doing it at that point. I'm not sure. And I'm learning that, you know, heal families. You heal with the individuals. Heal families. And even if mom and dad didn't, didn't abuse the child, maybe that's not even why the child is having so much trouble. Mom and dad can heal the child if you help them. You help them learn to love and do a modest amount of discipline. Love and discipline. We have to do that with each other. My wife disciplines me. If I get upset, I tell her what I'd like changed. And we love each other. It's a combination. You hold each other responsible for you know, a good, good relationship and you love. And that heals. Heals. Heal me. And... Um, I'm in the middle of this and I read that lobotomy is coming back, that there's been an international association meeting in 
Copenhagen of psychosurgeons. Walter Freeman was an American psychosurgeon. Psychosurgery is any intrusion into the brain in which you actually intrude, in contrast to shock where you put the stuff on the outside of the head. And, and they were inserting electrodes in people's heads, stimulating them to sort of toy with them, called it experimentation, it was toying, and then burning holes in heads. And um, I, I um, was unknown at the time, pretty much. I'd published a few articles, but they weren't that extremely controversial. They talked about freedom and responsibility, and some people got mad about it, but I wasn't, I wasn't well known. And um, I'd written a novel and pretty much unread at the time. I'm a good publisher. Okay. Um, so I wrote to everybody whose name was in the write-up about this big meeting about the brain people, they were cutting into the brain, they were putting radium chips to kill brain tissue. I mean, anything they could think of to harm the brain that they thought they liked to do. I mean, that's what would, it was. Would they actually insert ice picks through the nasal cavity? Yeah, well, that was, that was close to what Walter Freeman was doing, who was the honored, honored at this meeting. He was very big at the meeting. Walter had gone around America in a uh, an RV from state hospital to state hospital, putting on shows in their amphitheaters, and the show was that he would insert an ele uh, an ice pick around the eyeball, not the nasal, but I bet I imagine that could have been done that way, around the eyeball where the bone is thin, and just tap it right through the bone into the what's called the prefrontal area of the brain. The highest centers of the brain are right behind your eyes. And um, he even showed off by doing two at once. <laughs> and he didn't clean them. And here's all these doctors watching this. Nobody's complaining. And uh, he would give them shock first to knock them out. Then he'd do this to them. It was horrendous. He would do as many as they'd bring in, dozens if they'd bring them in. He claimed to have done about 5,000 of these. I read some of his works. He was do he described on one occasion a nine-year-old being brought into his office for a consult, and he lobotomized the nine-year-old girl. And I met a woman who said, I had the same experience. I brought my girl in. He wanted to lobotomize. I took her out. So we're talking about violence. This is worse than rape. This is a man who's doing worse things than rape. He's raping the soul, permanently mutilating. And everybody's, nobody's saying a word about it. And um, when I came along, he was still alive and honored. He was president of the local DC Association, professor at George Washington. It was ghoulish. And then there were other doctors doing other things, whatever they preferred. And then they'd argue it was wonderful. Well, I decided somebody had to stop this. So I got all these papers in from them. And when I heard that they, was operating on little black, they were operating on little black children, three, four, five years old in Mississippi, I got their papers. I wrote to all these people. His name is dead now. It was O.J. Andy. I wrote and said, oh, I'm a young psychiatrist. And at the time, I had a nice name behind me. I'm at the Washington School of Psychiatry. Please, um, you know, I want a bunch of papers. Well, I got such stuff. And so I organized an international campaign. I thought I'd have the backing of somebody. I had no backing whatsoever from any well-known psychiatrist ever. No big name professors of medicine or 
pediatrics, with psychiatry, ever. They all joined together in attacking me. I had some really wonderful psychologists who supported me. But, uh, I mean, they were all so afraid. Do you think that was the, the primary reason, the fear of their colleagues? I think so. You know, you mentioned heroism earlier. I've thought a lot about heroism and what has terrified me. And I think once you get to the point where you're like a doctor or a lawyer or an important businessman in your own mind, death isn't the biggest fear. That Anybody like that, you might jump into a fire to save somebody. We're very brave in things like that. Because firemen and policemen, oh, convent soldiers always risk their lives for people. But try snitching on your comrades. Firemen don't do that. Cops don't do that. Um, it's something terrifying about risking your identity. You can be so brave, physically brave, much braver physically than I am, and still be terrified of, of turning to your fellow policeman or, or officer in the service or, or anyone. Anyone, if it's a part of your social group and your identity. And of course, once I stood up, I found out just what a group will do to you. By the time I took on the pharmaceutical industry over my life, I dealt with a violent assault on my family. I'll tell you about it a little bit. Um, you probably should give me some warnings about time. I don't. I don't no, no, there's no, there's no time limitations. There's no time. Oh my God! <laughs> All right, you can edit it, of course. Yeah. Um, we're just staying now with the psychosurgery. Um, I mean, I had threats against me. I used to have bodyguards at times. I would speak in audiences challenging psychiatry and neurosurgery. And I met with the assistant director of the National Institute of Mental Health. And he told me, he said, Peter, he called to chat with me. I knew him, Lou Winkowski. He's probably not around anymore. Um, and he called me and he said, Peter, you know, you can't take on these neurosurgeons. You're not, you've got debates coming up with them at conferences. They're going to eat you alive. Well, I ate them alive. I mean, each one would debate me once and that would be it. They didn't know anything. They didn't even know about their own surgery. They didn't know that, for example, if you damaged a portion of the brain, the damage would increase with age because you would get contiguous death of cells and a spread of effect, and then you'd combine it with aging, so the damage would get worse. They didn't realize the brain was too integrated. You couldn't plop out aggression like an olive out of the center of a bowl or something, or a rotten apple, that there was an integration of the brain and you'd be harming the integration. They were so backward that one of their one of their arguments, a Harvard professor made an argument against me that I was an integrationist of the brain. I mean, well, how the heck do you think the organ creates speech, thought, and love, and hate? Ain't there little tiny pieces? It's an integrative process. It's occurred over evolution. It's layered upon layer, but there's always integration. The, the nerves deepest in the brain are reaching up to the frontal lobes of the brain. What are you talking about? <laughs> they didn't know anything. They were duck soup. They had to eventually stop. And every place I went, that would happen. I went to Great Britain, and they put me up against the most famous, name was William Sargent. He wrote a, a book on, um, on the brain. I forget what it was called, but I've 
very popular sounding title. And the BBC put me up against him. And, um, and during the debate, um, I said that you have written in your books, Dr. Sargent, that people who get your surgery become simpler and, and less spiritual and psychological and, 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 and exist on a more childlike and simpler level. And he said, I never said that. That's a lie. So I reached under the chair, I pulled out his book, and I read it on the air. And he started shaking shaking they'd, ne they'd never they would duck soup it was a it was like pitiful and and he's he's all upset and he had he had said publicly he was going to send this whippersnapper yelping back to america and he when it was over nobody paid any attention to me all these all the producers and everybody they got around the great dr sergeant and they petted him and they let him out and they shunned me and <laughs> And then a few weeks later, those days you had to wait for mail. I get a letter from the BBC saying people love me and it was the most popular show they'd had that year. So I mean, there's this huge gap between what ordinary people understand and when you've been educated in a certain area. Education makes you stupid in almost almost every area, with few exceptions. It's gotten worse and worse. Because it teaches you trade unionism, even if you're a doctor. Philosopher. So when you opposed this, you uh, not only were vilified by your professional colleagues, but you also had personal threats to yourself and your family. Can you elaborate on those? Well, the worst of those started when, um, after I wrote Toxic Psychiatry, I warned in 1991 or two, I warned about that the Prozac was going to very little paragraph. Prozac had just come out. I wrote that Prozac was really likely to be doing a lot of harm. It might cause violence and aggression. Just a little bit. And I said there were reports already. Um, and so I got asked to be the, uh, after they looked throughout the country, and I'm still very young, as you were saying earlier, they asked me to be the single scientific expert to put together all the science for like 150 or 60 lawsuits against Eli Lilly for Prozac, causing allegedly violence, suicide, mayhem, uh, and mania, psychosis, very, very bad things with a lot of deaths involved, self-inflicted and on other people. And... Um, Somewhere around that time, and I cannot assign blame to anybody. I cannot say that Lily did this. I can't say, I mean, there were other drug companies that could have done it. There could have been somebody else who did it. Um, but my wife and I and my daughter, um, my youngest daughter, um, we got very, very ill. We went to doctors, and it was right around the time, I think I even may have said during my, I don't remember, I may have said I was ill coughing during my deposition for, for, against Eli Lilly. And um, we, we were all sick. And my daughter was the sickest, my wife next, and me, me the least. And um, we figured out why that was too. And then we had a plumber to fix something in the basement and he came upstairs, he said, do you know that your stovepipe for your furnace and your stovepipe for your gas heater have been disconnected and as if hidden 
flying out of sight and it's just pouring in to the house. You know, it was quite a shock. Mm-hmm. And he had actually fixed it before he came upstairs. I mean, he probably didn't begin to dawn on him what it would be about. And um, the reason why my daughter was the sickest because she liked to do her homework in the living room right above. And then my wife would be in the kitchen, which was almost above quite almost as much and also out in the living room. But my office, I had built my own office onto the back of the house above ground. That's where I spent most of my time, great big office. Um, Now we had death threats. Um, I called the FBI, had the FBI come in. Then when I called the FBI back, they said they had no record of coming to see me. It got very weird. That happened actually before the stovepipes. And uh, Ginger said that, I was talking to her about the other day. She said, that's why we just even think of calling the police. We'd already called the FBI. I also thought I knew that a celebrity was making these threats against me and at the time. And because he'd gone on TV against me and the letter just sounded like him. And um, they wouldn't investigate him. They got very upset when I mentioned his name, the FBI people. So we were in this strange world. And people just get angry at me in the audiences. That never happens anymore. I mean, I, wherever I go, I get loved. I want people to know. The environment has changed completely. People, so many people now know the drugs are dangerous, shock treatment is horrible. But the power of psychiatry grows and the drug company grows. So you've got two things going on. More and more people are being recruited in by all the ads and all the push and all the fake science. And it's all, it is all fake science look at any of my books they want it quicker look look on the youtubes but but at the same time the more people are being recruited more people are being enslaved to it and it, it's kind of like what went on in russia before the fall well the wall fell you know it gets worse and worse and then or slavery it got worse worse and worse as the slaveholders fought for their lives then of course it collapsed but it took a war and I don't know what will it take to, to turn this thing with psychiatry around. But um, let me finish one thing and I'll take a breath and maybe you can talk a little sure. bit. Um, and that was, I began to realize that something was the matter with how I'd gotten hired. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail, but the first lawyer, it just seemed to me that he was behaving unethically. Um, he was paying me from a fund of a case that I'd never seen. And, and so I said to him, but look, if, you, if I, you're paying me for this money, but what happens when I look at the case? And I say, no, I can't take that case. And he, he must didn't believe me. I said, no, I, I have to see the case that this fund is, money is coming from. I don't want to be in a position of then saying, oh, you've paid me $100,000 or something because I would do whatever it was going to be. It wasn't. Didn't get that high. But because I'm, re- I'm doing everything for all the cases. I'm looking at all the science. I'm interviewing the FDA. I'm taking courses intended for drug companies on, on how to do uh, um, applications for drugs to the FDA. I'm interviewing FDA people. So I learned so much. I learned more than any other doctor in outside the drug companies in the world, you know, because I had this incredible job and I, some of these things I paid for and some of the cases, the case was paying for. So they finally sent me the case 
and they postdated the letter by a year. So it looked like they had sent to me the year before, and I realized this isn't right, and I quit. I quit the most important thing in my whole life, professionally. I talked to Ginger about it. He said, I'm not going to do this. I don't trust this man. Well, he got fired by them. I don't know what any of the dynamics were. And then I got a new lawyer who was a very, now in this case, a very respected and loved older man in Chicago. And lo and behold, they come back and they ask me again. They say, will you come back? I said, yes. Well, lo and behold, he dies. He dies. Mysteriously or? He's supposedly a heart attack or something, but that's all I know is he had some sort of cardiovascular thing, I think. Not sure. It's hard to get information. And, you know, I would get scared at times and not even focus on some of this. It was like, my God, what's going on around me? I mean, this is the same time that as far as I knew, they tried to at least make me and my family very ill. And they, in fact, made it hard for me when I was preparing for the Prozac trial. So then I'm now working with this great attorney from Chicago. His assistant is now working with a man named Paul Smith. I'll name Paul Smith from Texas. And the first case, I read the first case. It's a terrible case. The last case you'd want to go first. I'm thinking, what's going on here? My wife, Ginger, who is extraordinarily insightful, she says, honey, this looks like a fix to me. You have a trial where the man committed a mass murder, West Becker case, and you're telling me he threatened to kill people before he was put on Prozac. I said, yeah. And so I'm not going to be able to testify the way they want me to. I'm not going to say Prozac's the only cause of this. I'm going to say Prozac tipped him over because he took Prozac, got psychotic in the office of the doctor for the first time. The doctor said, Question mark Prozac, stopped the Prozac, but within days the man went and did the murders. I said, we got enough causality to say. So the lawyers are fighting with me as I'm not willing to say it caused it. I'm only willing to say it put him over the edge. And then I never get any more communications from Paul Smith. This is bizarre. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I meet the man for 15 minutes one day, and that's all I ever hear from him, and then I'm called to the trial. Now, anybody who knows anything about Charles, this is really crazy. I get there and I found out I'm in one hotel across town and he's in another hotel with the Lily people across the other side of town. My wife, Ginger, says, sweetheart, this is, this is, this is a fixed trial. I said, oh, I cannot believe that, dear. Well, I go, I've got two days to spare, so I go to the law offices. Not particularly invited. Nobody's paying any attention to me. I'm being set up, what it was, being set up. So I go to the law office. I find out there have been like 50 depositions taken. I haven't been given any of them. Lily has interviewed all his, West Becker's family members, childhood. There's literally innumerable depots. I've seen none. I find a chronology of his childhood. I go to the Smith, I said, I want a copy of this. He says, you can't have one. So I take it and I get it copied from his secretary anyway. And it's because it's, it's created by Eli Lilly. It's his childhood and all the problems he had in his childhood. Then we have a meeting with a few of the lawyers that are involved. And I actually confront Smith in front of them. I say, you haven't even put me through questions and answers. And he says, well, I ask you a question. Yes, my question. I can. Make. So you don't need any practice. 
I said, I don't like what's going on here. And I'm very upset. Now he yells at me. None of the other lawyers are going to are defending me. So I give him a stack of cards and I say, you better ask me these questions. You had better ask me these questions. This is incredible. This is the strangest, craziest. It's such a weird world. My wife is saying, honey, you're walking into a fix. You know, be careful. I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know. Can I, I don't know, talk to the judges. I don't know how to do that even. So we, I go on the stand and um, they have the, when I read that, when I read later the, um, the transcript, I can't believe what I'm doing. I'm actually asking and answering questions. <laughs> I'm conducting a, a one person testimony and and then he stops the testimony and the course begins and the guy who's a former still probably at the time a tobacco industry guy this was shakardi uh, and bacon he's bullying me he's coming up yelling at me and i'm i'm looking at him and i say you're bullying i turned to you your honor he's he's uh he's bullying me you know he's abusing me i had a more legal word for it. And he says, that's right. Stop it. And he tells him to cut it back off. My, the, Smith isn't doing that. And I was good during, during the cross. Um, I scored points despite everybody. When I came down off the stand, Smith was so angry at me. And his, the, I won't mention the woman's name was his sister. So angry at me. When the trial was over, uh, it was almost a hung jury. It was, I think you had to, if 9-3 would have been a hung jury out of 12 or something like that, and it was 9-2. I convinced two people to vote against it, and that wasn't enough. And we lost the trial. No one ever said it was a mixed vote or anything. And, and every newspaper covered, all the big newspapers, this win. Then a few months later, I'm talking to some, I almost quit. I started, I, I called a couple of lawyers and said, I'm not doing this work anymore. I think this was fixed. I don't know what that happened. And I don't want to do this anymore. And they talked to me and they said, you're the only person doing it. You know, you're actually the only person doing this. So I kept on doing it. And then one day a lawyer says to me, do you know the trial was really, was fixed in fact? I said, what do you mean? They realized it? Yes. What happened with the trial is that some of the jurors had um, gone up to maybe one, maybe one, maybe two, to the judge during the trial and said, we heard these men discussing settlement. I just want you to know that out in the hallway, it was the two both lawyers. So the judge called in the lawyers and they lied to him and they said, no, we haven't told, no, we haven't, no money's passed hands, we haven't discussed settlement. And then when the trial was over and we had lost, there were some divorces among the people who had sued. People get divorced when they lose their sons and daughters, you know? And it turned out that huge amounts of money had landed in the millions, had landed in the hands of the people when there was supposedly no settlement and Lily had won. So the judge called everybody in told them they'd lied, they admitted to lying, and both Smith and the drug company united to try to throw the judge out. It went to the Supreme Court of Kentucky. They said that it was clearly a, uh, 
settlement, a secret settlement, and, and, and probably or possibly it was fraud. They had the judge come to a decision. The judge decided that the trial was fake. I tried to communicate with him because he only thought that it was fake that moment. I tried to communicate with him. I called his assistant. I said, this was fake from the beginning. Would you please let the judge talk to me? It was fixed from the beginning. I don't think they believed me and the judge never called me. No one called me Matt. Very frustrating. No, he decided it was fixed during the trial. He didn't realize what was going on when I was on the stand. And um, he reversed the verdict. He changed it from a victory by Eli Lilly to a uh, secret settlement um, with prejudice, that is, that Eli Lilly could not change it. They agreed to settle. And then he started to disclose the amount. So they went back to court, the Smith and the judge, and they said um, that, uh, that they wanted the judge removed because he was prejudiced against them because they, they lied to him. <laughs> so he, the judge was removed and, and it was not disclosed how much. The next judge said he wasn't gonna disclose how much because it would hurt Eli Lilly. All this is true. All this is in my book, Medication Madness. It's wonderful reading. So a chapter I put in Medication Madness, one of my best books. Book, uh, I'm going to read two of my books, Medication Madness and Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety. Yeah, two of my newer books. And uh, late, later on, the, the, it came out month, years later, and I forget, but there were millions involved in the settlement. Yeah, Boy, there's a place to take a break, huh? Quite well, a life. You're, you're a part of history for sure. And uh, I think many people certainly have heard of Eli Lilly, but may not realize that 30 years ago when this was going on, that they were a much larger company than they are now. They're, they're dwarfed by, by companies uh, like Pfizer and Merck at this time, but uh, they were a big deal. Uh, they still are pretty prominent, but not as big as these other giants. So they have a lot of pull. And interestingly, as an aside, uh, I was a family physician practicing in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago in the late 80s and 90s and wasn't as enlightened as you and, and became um, deceived and deluded, manipulated and brainwashed, I think it would be the sim simplest term when I went to medical school and I didn't have the confidence you did and I wound up prescribing these antidepressants and Prozac specifically to many people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Mm. Uh, it was my most, because I, I was a big advocate when I was finishing my residency training, I realized how common depression was. And because I was brainwashed, I thought that the drugs were the answer and, and you know, play around with a lot of them. And they actually did have, I had two malpractice suits filed against me. And one of them was for a person who attempted to commit Prozac or to commit suicide while taking Prozac that I had prescribed. And I remember that during the depositions that Eli Lilly was on my team because I was the defendant. And that's Literally, right. dur during the, the deposition, they brought in 10 lawyers. It was crazy. It was, it, these, all these high-powered lawyers they brought in. And uh, it, was, it was quite an experience. Was, I think it was the first case I was ever deposed in. And, uh, but, and, and of course, they wound up losing. The, the, the patient who sued me really was, it was somewhat of a frivolous case because she had a massive history, we found out later, had sued like 10 other doctors. And that was part of her modus operandi was just to just to sue doctors yeah. and uh, she, you know, it didn't even seem to be a serious suicide threat but it was really in the news i think at the time obviously and you were you were one of the main physicians uh 
that were prosecuting them on it. Um, so she thought she'd take advantage of it. So, but anyway, it was interesting. So that was my personal experience with it. And it wasn't until like a, a year or two later that I became more enlightened and actually made the transition to committing myself to help helping all my patients remove themselves from drugs mm -hmm. and, and, and send wonderful. a letter to all my patients that listen, if you're not willing to get off of drugs, you're going to have to find another doctor. And I lost 75% of my patients, which mm. was fine because it was really the catalyst that cha changed my whole career. But what, but that is a transition or tangent from the story you were telling before you went into the defense of Lily uh, against Lily, not defense, the prosecution against Lily for the Prozac cases. But, Maybe you could finish up, end the loop on the lobotomies because you know yeah. it was, and, and and I'm still really curious as to how you had the confidence and just the, almost the audacity. Hutzpah is another good word for it. To, to I to felt I had to. to stand up against these people. These were the these were professors at the most prestigious medical institutions in the country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the entire profession was saying that they were right. And here's you, this 20-year-old this who just thought that he knew well, I was Well, I was in my early 30s. My okay, early 30s. My I'm sorry. Just, yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah. you were still a young guy. You were at the bottom of the totem pole. Yeah, but I, I was standing up to doctors when I was 18 in the state mental yeah. hospitals. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I felt like. I don't have any choice. I did not have choice. It wasn't like I said, um, I want to do this. I don't want to do this. When I, when I found out, well, let me take a one minute aside. I was, I, was a ra I was raised by a 16 to 20 year old black child who my parents, who weren't rich, my mother just didn't want to bother with another son. She had enough trouble, I think, with her husband and her older son. And she found another son. She literally, from my birth practically, I was brought up by a 16-year-old black child, Bessie. I, I actually forgot about her and many years later actually found her. But um, I didn't know about being raised by a black child. But when I read, it shows you the power of the unconscious. Mm -hmm. When I read about a black child walking around a ward with with uh, uh, braids coming out of the back of his head of wires and having his brain melted, I had a nightmare. I woke up and I, I was a black child and I was smelling my brain burning. It was not like I had a choice, Joe. It's not like I thought a lot about making a choice. It was like, I, I, I can't ignore this. Certainly being Jewish and knowing the Holocaust and deciding very young. I, I saw a Holocaust movie when I was 10. This may be a partial answer. When I was 10 years old, Movie Tone News put on the liberation of a Nazi extermination camp. My parents didn't expect that. I didn't expect it. All of a sudden, I'm seeing piles of Jews. And um, although I wasn't raised in a religious way, we certainly were Jewish. And, and I thought, oh, my God. You know, what is this? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I'm not going to be in a pile. I'll, I'll fight. Um, and I don't know where that came from, but um, maybe from Bessie. <laughs> um, but it was like I had to do something about it. I was writing novels and, and, and occasional scientific papers about more about ethics and stuff. And um, 
when I saw what was being done to people, I said, somebody has to do this. I have no choice about this. But I had no idea what I was up against. I had no idea that everywhere there would be enemies, that they'd be threatened with violence even then. That when I was invited to speak by Harvard medical students, that people would go ripping down all the signs about the meeting. Um, and that there'd be blowback on the students and stuff like that. I had no idea what I was walking into. I did know that William Sweet, who was probably the primary enemy, was probably close to Ted Kennedy. And I knew Ted Kennedy was very much against lobotomy, against fighting lobotomy. But it was like I had to do it. And I found a reporter in Boston who would cover my work, Gene Dietz. I asked Gene one day, I said, Gene, how can you dare? I'm a young, young doctor. I'm telling you these things. I'm showing you the research. And you're going and writing about it in the Boston Globe. I said, how do you do that? And she said something like, well, I have a couple of sons who are doctors. I'm not impressed. <laughs> Overwhelmed something. It wasn't unloving, but it was like, I'm a mother with kids who are doctors, you know? Um, but Gene Dietz was a very big deal. And we got headlines in Boston. Um, that, that was a very important part of it. Um, another important part of the lobotomy campaign was that uh, a young lawyer, in those days there were poverty lawyers in Detroit, found out they were doing, going to do a psychosurgery experimentation in the state hospital with a local university, Wayne State, was all set up to go, and he intervened. Gabriel Kamowitz, Gabe Kamowitz. In fact, the case is called by his name, which is unusual. It wasn't much precedent for a lawyer on behalf of a, of a patient he hadn't even met to bring a lawsuit. Kamowitz v. State of Mental, Department of Mental Health, Wayne State University. And a three-judge panel met about the case. This man had been uh, interviewed by the commissioner of mental health. This poor patient who'd been chronically hospitalized and then allegedly had sexually assaulted a, a nurse or something, but there was no record of it, no, and certainly no, no adjudication of it, no meetings about it. And he was a lifetime patient, and the commissioner told him he could get out if, uh, if he went under the psychosurgery. Well, the judges looked over his case and decided first they were going to discharge him because he was being held illegally. So I discharged John Doe. So then the state said, well, the case is over. And they said, no, you guys have set up this whole thing. We're going to look at it. Well, I was the go-to person as the psychiatrist. Gabe found me, brought me in. And I went up to testify. And um, uh, he, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, testify the first day because they were filibustering me. They wanted to, to uh, force me to stay overnight um, so that my testimony would fill the afternoon and then they'd stay overnight and they'd have the whole weekend to review the case with, with the surgeons. You follow me? Supposed to they're forcing me into testifying in the afternoon, filibustering in the morning. And, and Gabe said, this is really too bad because now they're going to have the whole weekend to talk about your testimony with the surgeons. And I said, no, 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 we'll filibuster, filibuster back. I'll testify on something else for the afternoon. He said, how do you, how you do that? I said, well, I'm going to talk about the history of psychiatry. I'm going to tie it into the, uh, the extermination camps, which were very much modeled on state mental hospitals. And 
show that the, the comparison and hopefully the judges will invoke the Nuremberg Code, which says that of course that man couldn't test, couldn't volunteer in a state mental hospital because he's in a total institution, just like the Nuremberg Code was applied to. Is, is that clear, Joe? Yeah. And he said, okay. Well, I gave him a few questions and we went the afternoon and did that. And uh, then on the following Monday, I started to talk about psychosurgery. They were so unprepared that all they could do was go through this 100-page paper that I'd written, which is another story, couldn't get published, and finally got a congressman to put it in the congressional record. And I'll tell that as a separate story. But we won the trial. And it stopped on the spot. All psychosurgery in state hospitals and the federal programs. So NIH stopped. The VA stopped. What, and all what, state year, hospitals was, what year was stopped. that? 1972-73. Kamowitz, you can find it on my website. You can just Google Kamowitz v. Department of Mental Health or the Kamowitz case. And... Um, that was amazing. That was very, very important. The way, the, the way I really got it going, though, this was before I was with Ginger. See, Ginger, my wife Ginger comes into my life in the 80s. And then I, I greatly get a great deal of more help in doing things because I'm not alone anymore. And she's really smart and motivated and like me, unafraid. Or if she gets afraid like me, she gets just energized by it. Um, and uh, I couldn't find, I couldn't get any place to publish anything about psychosurgery. Just very few places. It was the first time I met conservatives. I got a conservative newspaper to publish something. I got some conservative senators to start working with me. And I got the Black Caucus on my side. So I'm going to Congress and I'm working with the Congressional Black Caucus, because of the black children. And I'm working with conservatives who think it's immoral. So, the, so the, the African-American Black Caucus are seeing the social consequences. They're seeing, oh, William Sweet had bragged that, that we could do this to uh, black leaders. He actually bragged about it. He got covered in the New York Times. Nobody said a word about it to me later. He talked about it in JAMA. They were going to do this to ghetto rioters, and it would end the ghetto rioting because the leaders had something wrong with them or they wouldn't be rioting. Nobody else. This, nope. this was after the riots in the late 60s? Yeah, 68, 69, 70. They were writing this in 68 and 69. And it was <laughs> widely accepted publicly as a, as a practical solution. Nobody was criticizing. I'm the first person to criticize it in public that I know of, let alone the first psychiatrist. It was crazy. I still don't un understand human beings. I, I work hard about it, but <laughs> keep falling short. I couldn't believe that I, I was so alone doing this, too. I mean, I had some wonderful people come to support me. Bert Karen was a professor of psychology, recently passed on, and a couple of wonderful neurologists, so a, a fellow neurologist named Friedberg and Robert Grimm in, in Portland, but very, very few, very, very few. And almost no psychiatrists. So one one uh, leftist psychiatrist. I was bringing together people from all sides, and um, so I actually gave up. And I thought, I don't know what to do. And then I thought, well, I'm, I've got this paper published. I talked to this congressional assistant. He actually went to the library and checked my references. And he went back and he told the congressman, "Bregan's telling the truth." 
So the congressman put it in the record, thanked me for my work. So now it's in the congressional record. What do I do? So I thought, well, what's the Associated Press? I've heard of that. I'll call the Associated Press. And here's what God, God's hand, I think. I really am beginning to believe more and more in retrospect, God's hand. You want to know how it happened? God's hand. So I call the Associated Press and I say, can I speak to the science writer? And that's where God's hand was. And the man at the other end of the phone said, no, I'm sorry, he's on vacation. He said, what, what's going on? Because the science writer would have been like every other science writer. The Washington Post science writers were my worst enemies. When I debated at NIH, all because of me, the only reason I'm, was I, because of me, I debated O.J. Andy, the guy who's mutilating the brains of little black children. The Washington Post reported it as a speech by Andy. <laughs> That's how bad the science writers were. Well, they still are. They've yeah. written a few articles about me. Yeah, there you go. Okay, well, that's good. That gives you a little encouragement. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a pretty much a shock. I went to read the article. I'm not even in it. I'm the one that had the meeting. <laughs> uh, right in NIH. No, just a speech by this evil, I mean, a genuinely evil man. And <laughs> they're covering it and praising him. Um. So, but that, that's a good example, though, an illustration of one of the, one of the C's that I was talking about, of, of characteristics of being a hero, and that was the creative component, because you could, just could have sat on your laurels and said, well, great, I've got this 100-page obscure right. paper published in the congressional record, but you took it to the next level and thought to put it into the public sphere. I wanted to stop them. The AP, right. Yeah, so I didn't want to enjoy the process. I wanted to stop them. Right. Oh, Lord. Oh, this is wonderful. I've almost never had an interview like this, really. Uh, the closest thing is one of the interviews, but it was much more focused that um, the Dykes did. That's up on yeah, 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 yeah. They, they were actually inspiration for this. Uh, they I, I yes. really love God bless work. them. Yeah. Um, so the, this man who had sort of talked like a kind of an ordinary guy, you know, and um, he said, if you help me spell the words, this sounds horrible. I'll send out a 500-page release. And he said, and I got your congressional record. I said, how'd you get the record? He said, what do you think the clacking is in the background? And he said, it gets printed out and sent to all of us. That's what the, that's what the, uh, whatever it was called at the time was. It teletype. Whatever, it's a teletype. teletype. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know anything. So um, he put out a 500 page release and that was the real start of the anti-psychosurgery campaign. Went all over the world. People started to want to help me. More people in Congress wanted to help me. And um, there was an amazing experience. I don't do that work anymore. I actually consciously, 20 years ago, moved out of Washington, D.C. I thought, let's, Gingy, let's go away from this and we'll do different things. But I still ended up so doing everything. When did psychosurgery end? It really started to end in the early 70s. Uh, and then what really, really cut them down was I went to uh, the Black Caucus and I went to the conservatives in Congress and I asked them to do a bill, which I wrote, to um, create a psychosurgery commission. Now, that was another big thing that I, I could have done more with. Like, and the, we, we did it. It was opposed by Ted Kennedy. So let me take an excursion on that one. Along the way... My, one of my biggest opponents was Ted Kennedy, who was head of the Health Committee in the Senate. And um, no one knew at the time, I didn't know, that Rosemary 
guess that's his sister, was lobotomized by dad. Hmm. And, um, and Kennedy wouldn't hold hearings. He just wouldn't do a move. And he was the, he was the most important person in the Senate on any health issue. And I had been covered uh, that there were threats against my life made by a psychosurgeon who said that he, he was uh, talking to these prisoners and death row and they knew the only hope for them was psychosurgery. So one of them was going to try to escape and kill me. And he was really worried about me. It was a death threat by the psychosurgeon. Um, and um, I, he eventually had to stop. M. Hunter Brown. But um, I did a lot to embarrass him after that. I made it public what he was doing and stuff. And I made public through uh, one of the top, he was the top um, columnist at the time. And now, right now, his name is escaping me, Drew Pearson. And I knew his, his research assistant. I was really, things were different then. I had much more access. The drug companies have cut off access now. Um, and um, I told him to tell, please tell, I think it was Drew Pearson. I could be wrong. Jack Please, Anderson? Was it Jack Anderson? It was Jack Anderson. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. You rescued me. It was Jack Anderson. Mm -hmm. I said, tell Jack that I'm going to blow the whistle on Rosemary because I just got a brown envelope with no name on it with her records in it and pictures of her before and after a lobotomy. And if he doesn't stop opposing me, and if he doesn't hold some hearings because he's the only one who could do it, I'm going to blow the whistle. Well, very quickly, he set up hearings. I wasn't invited. All the surgeons were, and all the other big leagues. So I wrote back. I, I got back to, to uh, Jack Anderson again, who was his main man, and said, and you tell him if I'm not invited, I'm going to hold a press conference outside his door. I don't know. I don't do this anymore. It's a young man's uh, life. And so I got invited. And um, I testified very, very scientifically, as I always do. So then, afterward, I sat down in the audience. And Ted Kennedy starts attacking me. He says, you're like the people who burned um, uh, the, the witches at the stake? Yeah, no, no, the, the, um, of the great of original astronomer at the stake, which nobody oh, okay. did. Didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, you'll know his name. Um, Galileo? Capone. Galileo. No, thanks. He said, Bern Gal. This might be the effect of 83 years, but I think it's just more, there's so much to go back to. Yeah, you've got it. <laughs> your your data banks are overloaded. with. Yeah, they, <laughs> I haven't dumped these in a while. So, and, you know, and of course, Galileo wasn't burned at the stake. I mean, he couldn't have lived. Teddy couldn't have lived. And he said, and Dr. Bregan, well, are you against heart surgery too? Because if you have a bad arrhythmia, surgeons will harm the heart in order to um, slow the arrhythmia. So I did something which I didn't know was unheard of. I stood up in the audience. I said, I'm going to answer that. And he said, the guy said, you can't answer this. And the cameras turned to me. I said, I'm answering this. I said, Senator Kennedy, 
what circulates through your bloodstream is just your blood going through your heart, your blood going through your heart. Nothing awful happens to you if you impair that heart. But sir, through your brain is circulating your soul. You harm your brain, you harm the expression of your soul. It was covered on the local news. God, I wish I had that. The New York Times covered the thing and said, and one religious zealot was against psychosurgery on religious ground. That was me. I had given a very scientific argument. And besides, they had, I had so many scientific publications by that time. I had a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, they, it's a uh, uh, censorship by omission. You know, they, they're, they're, cl they're clever at doing that. So, so that was the early 70s. And, yeah. uh, you know, but, I'll have to finish in about 10 or 15 minutes because I uh, have someone coming over for okay. an important task. Well, we, could, we could summarize it. So, so there's, with that timeline. Uh, let, maybe, me, let, me, let me say the most recent important victories. Sure. Okay. I think the most recent thing, and I'll come back anytime and talk with you, John. My God, sure. I will. And I'll talk about specific drugs, drug issues, nothing about me. Sure. I'll talk about why the drugs are so bad. Okay. Um, and I know you don't have to use all of this. And if you don't use all of this, you give it to me, I'll put it up. No, no, no. We're definitely uh, going to be broadcasting the entire interview. So. Oh, my gosh. All right. So... The one thing I could never dent was shock treatment. I've worked and worked and worked on denting shock treatment. And then finally, a uh, class action suit was brought against the manufacturers. They lost against the first drug the first manufacturer, the only two in, in uh, North America. And I wasn't involved. And then they called me in. And of course, they expected again to get it just thrown out of court. But I did a scientific brief, basically, for the judge on brain damage from ECT. And the judge decided that there was sufficient evidence for brain damage to make it a jury question. This was huge. This, he focused, the judge focused on the single most important thing he could. And the drug company within days settled. Um, and within days, put out a statement to the FDA that ECT can cause brain damage and severe memory loss. And all that's up on my website and I've written blogs about it. The FDA, to show you the nature of what is definitely a conspiracy of people, work, people working together toward the same aim and being evil about it, within days, the FDA approved ECT for the first time. Hmm for drug-resistant um, depression, which means nothing. It, no, still, not even drug-resistant, treatment-resistant depression. Sure. It's still in use today, although... Well, no, it's used, it's used more and more. It's not less. It's used more and more. Okay. And I don't think we slowed it down with this, but we made a big gain. We now have a record of a drug company admitting to the FDA causes brain damage and so on. But then the FDA with all its power comes right back and then approves ECC for the first time. They'd never approved it. They tried to, and there was so much opposition, they didn't do it. But then when they drug companies got hurt, it was within days that they approved them. Wow. That's crazy. So This is a lot of talking. It is. So j j maybe one quick 
question that sure. uh, I'm, not, I'm just, you can highlight because you, you have this uh, prescience for recognizing threats to oh, the God, human Oh, God, that's brain. brilliant to ask me that. So yeah. one of the, the, the new up, potent, uprising potential threats is Neuralink, uh, which is a uh, transcranial uh, implant that being designed by Elon Musk company. Uh, and I have great respect for Elon is probably one of the most brilliant innovators in the history of the human race with respect to technology and, and yeah, it's stuff. interesting and electric cars, yeah. but, but he may be, and I, I know why he's doing this. He's doing it because he's, he's, he's consciously concerned about the integration of artificial general intelligence, which we're not at yet, but it's coming. And he's afraid that the human race could become subservient to artificial intelligence. And, and he thinks one of the, the, the preservation strategies is to allow us to sort of keep pace with this, these advances. And I, at least that's his justification as, I, as well, as far as I can discern it. And, but I, I, I believe you have a different concern about this. And I wonder if you'd like to. Yeah, this is the new cutting edge that I'm trying to get across to people. I have a new blog new radio show out that I did, I'm sorry, a radio TV show. If you go to my uh, YouTube, YouTube channel and look at about a week ago with the Dykes, these wonderful people we're talking about, Aaron and Melissa, I did a show about this saying that this is worse than the psychiatry we have now. And um, I'm focusing on all the electronics, particularly I start out focusing on now that the FDA has approved electrodes on the heads of children to leave them on all night long, to give them low voltage stimulation, which is gonna back up the nerves, gonna go through the skin, back up the nerves, go all the way to the front lobes, in an entirely disruptive, hammer-like, I think crushing way, and it's gonna blunt the kids. And it's yeah. horrible. They studied it for four weeks and approved it, if you can imagine that. Yeah. And the studies- TDCS, trans-direct cranial stimulation? Yes, it's, that's what it is. And, um, but it's, very, it's low voltage, but it's going to go right back up, disrupt. It already, we know it disrupts brain waves. It's bizarre they approved this. And um, I started to take this on. And then with uh, Aaron and Melissa, or actually through Aaron and Melissa, I found out about what uh, was being done, uh, you know, by, by Elon Musk. And what's interesting to me is that while Musk is so brilliant, he's stupid about the brain. And that's probably because neurosurgeons and psychiatrists who he consults are stupid about the brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just stupid. He wants to put in multiple thread-like electrodes into the brain. To multiple, thousands, thousands of them. And put them into uh, webs of neurons and uh, put in low voltage stimulation. This is insane. The brain can't tolerate this. What no, is it's not, not only stimulation, it's actually communication. Uh, well, he's going to hope to communicate, but it's yeah, not going to yeah. be any communication. The brain isn't going to talk to these electrodes. Yeah, that's that's not how the brain works. The brain talks to itself. It's not going to talk to Elon Musk. And he's going dis to disrupt the brain talking to itself. It's a terrible thing to do. How he, I wish he would... Somebody would hear this and who knows Elon Musk and say, you ought to talk to Peter Bragg. And he says, your consultants are stupid. He's already planning to try to get it in use for some neurological disorders, which, which right. sometimes you, and get the FDA approval. And that'll be the beginning of the onslaught. And here's the really deadly part and a part to really think about and maybe to close with. 
And that is that the Defense Department's DARPA, capital D-A-R-P-A, well, the, the, um, um, the <laughs> it's been found that, that they're, being, they're funding Musk. Yeah, yeah. Dykes found Musk. out that, that the machine is going to be using to sew in these electrodes has been developed through the funding of DARPA and work through UCLA, which has always been murderous toward the brain. And way back when I was doing this work, we shut down programs at UCL, LA, going way back. Shut down a lot of different kinds of programs in my anti-psychosurgery campaign. Um, All right, well, perhaps that's a good place to end. Uh, And uh, I want to deeply express my deep gratitude for your sharing your Mm. life story and you know, walking us through the process it took to overcome this, this grievous travesty of human behavior that, you know, and the courage it took to do that, stand up against your professional colleagues. And, and at the price of, you know, essentially your personal health and freedom. My health has survived amazingly yeah. well. It did, yes. It did. Joe, Dr. McCola, thank yeah. you from all the way down in here. Thank you for this right, opportunity. Welcome. Yeah, we'll have to have you back and maybe talk about some of the drugs, which are my yeah, We'll go into some of the scientific details anytime. Yeah, because, but, but, you know, I, I thought it would be professionally negligent not to capture your experience because you truly yeah. are a hero. And I wanted to honor you for that, for that, Thank you. those actions. Thank you so much.